Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The opioid epidemic is hitting Latinos in Massachusetts especially hard, and it's forcing people to go searching for a way out of addiction. You know, I, I still have dreams where I'm, I'm about to use drugs, you know, and I have to wake up and get on my knees and, and pray, you know, and be like, God, take this away from me because, you know, I don't want to go back. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. The overdose rate for Latinos in Massachusetts has doubled in three years. We'll explore what's happening. Also, police are cracking down on bootleggers buying cases of alcohol at New Hampshire liquor stores. They're coming up here with shopping lists. These guys have a notebook. Um, they have the money and the, and, the, and the gift cards. Plus, Maine's new way of voting is, well, it's up for a vote. At the same time that voters are testing this for the very first time, they will also be deciding on a separate people's veto question whether they want to keep ranked choice voting going forward. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In Massachusetts, the opioid epidemic is hitting one group of residents especially hard, Latinos. In just three years, their rate of overdose deaths has doubled, rising faster than deaths among blacks or whites. Martha Biebinger of WBUR went looking for a reason why. A man in sneakers, jeans, and a short sleeve plaid shirt slaps greetings to a small group at Casa Esperanza, a collection of day treatment and residential programs in Roxbury. My name is Richard Lopez. My age is 48 years old. Um, I'm originally from Jersey. Okay, my name is Irma, and I'm a grateful recovering addict. I'm 43. Uh, my name is Felito Diaz. I'm a house manager at the men's program. Julio Cesar Santiago completes this semicircle of patients and staff, all in recovery, whose common addiction is heroin. He's three weeks into treatment. You know, I, I still have dreams where I'm, I'm about to use drugs, you know, and I have to wake up and get on my knees and, and pray, you know, and be like, God, take this away from me because, you know, I don't want to go back. You know, I, I know that if I go back out there, I'm done. Santiago has reason to worry. Overdose death rates among Latinos increased at twice the rate of any other race or ethnicity in the most recent state report. These three men and one woman, as well as others interviewed for this story, agree on many reasons why. Here's the first. That has a lot to do with the uh, language barrier. Irma Bermudez says Latinos who are not fluent in English hit the first barrier when they try to decipher websites or brochures that advertise treatment. I mean, we might find out about an agency and walk in there, but if there's no translation, we're not going to get nothing out of it. Nothing out of group counseling sessions or individual appointments where patients don't understand all or even most of what's said. 11% of estimated opioid overdose deaths last year were Latino. 
And yet this agency, Casa Esperanza, says it is the only addiction treatment program in Boston where all of the direct care staff speak Spanish. There are 100 names on the waiting list for the men's unit. So Richie Lopez, who's now a recovery coach, spends a lot of time on the phone trying to get clients into a program that has at least one translator. You got to press one. You got to press two. And then when you get to all this voice thing, you get a voicemail. And eventually, says Lopez, a callback that typically offers to put his client on another waiting list. Cheese and crackers, you telling me that this person has to wait two to three months to get a bed. I'm trying to save this person today. Lopez has close ties these days with providers, the police, and EMTs. But he had a different attitude when he was using heroin on the streets. And it may point to another reason Latinos are dying after an overdose more often than other drug users. It's not cool to be calling 911. Even, says Lopez, if you are watching someone overdose. Everyone in the room says this is more true of Latino men than women. You know, the men in the house, like the word help sounds like degrading. You know what I'm saying? Like you degrade yourself. Not even 911. 911 is like you're getting exiled from your community. That's social exile. Felito Diaz says possible physical exile terrifies some Latinos, too. They fear if they get involved, they're going to get deported. Yeah, if you um, will be facing deportation, definitely. Bermudez jumps in. And some other women also, uh, if they're in a relationship or trying to protect someone, they might hesitate as well. Hesitate if their boyfriend or husband is overdosing, but has an outstanding warrant for drug possession or a related crime like robbery. 79% of Casa Esperanza clients have been incarcerated in the last five years, which makes finding a job or building a stable life when they leave treatment difficult. You want to start over, you want to start fresh, but you can't do it because you have your past in your back. The stigma is so hard. The only thing that's available is a damn dishwasher or working in a damn kitchen. Are you serious? We're going back to what you know. Going back to using and sometimes dealing drugs, which raises another reason Latinos may be hit hard by this epidemic. Current and former users say they have an inside track. Drug users and investigators interviewed for this story say many distributors are Dominican or Puerto Rican. They say Spanish-speaking buyers sometimes get discounts or the first most potent cut. It's a cultural thing, says Lopez. Of course. I, I would feel more comfortable selling to a Latino if I was a drug dealer than a Caucasian or somebody else because I know how to relate and get that money off them. Latinos are hardly a uniform community, but they share an important risk factor for addiction, poverty. In Massachusetts, four times as many Latinos live below the poverty line as do whites. 97% of Casa Esperanza clients were recently homeless. See that green building back there? That's ours. Out on the street, Casa Esperanza director Emily Stewart points to one of the program's transitional housing units. The wait time for an apartment in that green building stretches from one to ten years. If you've done all the work of getting somebody stabilized, and then they leave and they don't have a stable place to go, you know, you're right back where you started. Stewart praises Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker for diving into the data that shows higher overdose death rates for Latinos. The next step, she says, has to be a public education campaign in Spanish-language media. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. 
in New Hampshire, the state's tax-free liquor stores draw in customers from across the region, and they raise a lot of money for the state. It's been this way for decades, and for decades, law enforcement from other states have been keenly aware of these large-scale purchases. NHPR's Todd Bookman reports on a recent wave of arrests aimed at bootleggers who stock up in the Granite State. Right around noon on November 9th of last year, a black Chevy Suburban pulled up to a New Hampshire liquor store. The driver was a guy named Jun Cheng Chen, 46 years old, from Queens, New York. Chen bought some booze, then headed off to another liquor store to make another purchase, then another, then another. In total, he bought liquor at six different New Hampshire stores that afternoon. Chen didn't know it, but he was being watched. A criminal investigator with the New York State Department of Taxation was trailing him, following him from store to store, and then southbound on the highway. When Chen crossed the border back into New York, the investigator contacted a state trooper. Chen was pulled over with 757 liters of alcohol in his trunk, including more than 500 bottles of Hennessy cognac. He was arrested on felony charges for violating New York state law regarding importation of liquor. Ming Li Chen is his attorney. We happen to have the same last name, but another related. Ming Li Chen says his client had no previous charges related to bootlegging. He also denies that he was going to resell the liquor. He was buying the alcohol for personal use, for parties at home or parties uh, somewhere. 500 bottles of Hennessy for personal use, for parties. Okay. Anyways, officials from the Department of Taxation in New York declined to answer questions about this case or any of their activities in New Hampshire. That silence makes it hard to know how frequently they're conducting these types of stings. But what's clear is this. Other states know New Hampshire is a source for alcohol for bootleggers, and they're willing to cross state borders to try to stop it. You know, from our perspective... This is, this is an organized criminal activity. Gary Kessler is deputy commissioner at the Vermont Department of Liquor Control. Along with New York, court records show his agency has also sent investigators to stake out New Hampshire liquor store parking lots in recent months, including in Peterborough and Keene. When the customers crossed back into Vermont with trucks full of booze, they were arrested for violating that state's liquor laws. Clearly, these guys aren't just randomly deciding that they're going to come up and buy some cases of alcohol. They're coming up here with a shopping list. These guys have a notebook. Um, they have the money and the, and, the, and the gift cards. These operations by other states are happening without the assistance or knowledge of New Hampshire officials. The Liquor Commission says it wasn't notified. Neither was the AG's office or state police. Well, quite frankly, I'm troubled by it. Cross-border enforcement by these other states comes at an awkward time for the Liquor Commission. Earlier this year, Executive Counselor Andrew Valinsky called for an investigation into how the state agency handles large all-cash transactions, transactions he says could be in violation of federal financial laws. The IRS has also been asking questions about bootleggers. Valinsky says the lack of communication between the states raises additional concerns. Uh, I'm troubled that there's not the ability to coordinate with New Hampshire uh, to address these issues. And I, I think it's a sad state of affairs that we as New Hampshire are not setting an ethical example. Ethics aside, liquor is big business in New Hampshire. The state-run stores are a cash cow today and have been going back decades. And other states have been angry about their residents making illegal purchases for apparently just as long. 
Back in the 1970s, Massachusetts and Connecticut sent officials to stake out liquor store parking lots. According to Tom Rath, who was attorney general at the time, this didn't sit well with then-Governor Mel Thompson. Rath says the governor ordered New Hampshire state police to shoo away the tax collectors. And it got pretty pretty feisty, and, and Governor Thompson um, was never one to um, back away from an issue like that. So it, it was an interesting uh, time. Rath says the big difference between then and now is the size of the purchases. These aren't just folks picking up a few bottles of scotch. These bootleggers are moving huge quantities, and they're likely reselling it. That's a lot of Hennessy. Yeah. I met this gentleman recently in a Manchester liquor store parking lot. Leave on that about that bootlegger that's been going on for 50 years. He wasn't eager to give his name. He also wasn't excited about the attention bootlegging is getting from law enforcement right now. But he doesn't expect it to stop. I'm going to tell you something. This is going to be a story, a hot story for a minute, and that's it. And with that, he continued loading case after case of Hennessy cognac into his white van with New York plates. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. We've been covering the plight of the endangered North American right whale and how its fate is entangled with the fate of the booming Maine lobster fishery. Now, there's a big international twist in this story. A group of New England senators is calling on the U.S. government to speed up an analysis of Canada's efforts to protect the whale and to consider trade action if Canada's rules don't prove as strong as those in the U.S. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports that the issue is raising anxiety in the industry on both sides of the border. The right whale's numbers have dropped to only 450 following an unprecedented spate of dead whales found in Canada's Gulf of St. Lawrence last year. The senators say U.S. fishermen have made big sacrifices to reduce impacts on the whales. Now they're calling on the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to investigate whether fishermen in Canada are being held to similar standards. And if not, they say, then NOAA should consider barring the import of Canadian seafood from the relevant fisheries. You know, it's really a double-edged sword. Patrice McCarran is executive director of the Maine Lobstermen's Association. She says Maine's lobster harvesters do not relish the prospect of a trade dispute with their neighbors to the north. That is a very big hammer to use. But given the fact that we have, you know, media report after media report threatening that this whale species can go extinct and our fishery potentially could be shut down because of that, I think it does rise to the level that we have to have all options on the table. McCarran acknowledges that the two countries' fisheries are interdependent. Because the Canadian lobster harvest is strongest in winter and the U.S. harvest is strongest in summer, together they keep the world supplied with American lobster year-round and they keep cross-border market infrastructures humming. And that's why the Maine Lobster Dealers Association is opposing the senator's approach. There is a very complicated and intricate supply chain that happens beyond the boat and beyond the dock. Annie Salikas is executive director of the Dealers Association. She says the industry depends on consistent supply and on smooth avenues for trade. In the absence of both of those things, it's very difficult for lobster businesses to maintain their markets and their customer base. And so the ripple effect of an issue like this would be massive for lobster companies in Maine. Most right whale deaths are attributed to entanglements with fishing ropes and buoys or ship strikes. Since 12 whales turned up dead in the Gulf of St. Lawrence last year, Canadian fishery regulators have taken action, 
including new gear requirements for New Brunswick's growing snow crab fishery and moving its season around in an effort to get rope out of the water before the whales might show up. In the letter, its author, Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey, applauds Canada's actions, but he also says he's concerned it's not enough. And in Canada, the prospect of a shutout from American markets has rattled government officials. The closure of access to that market would be the biggest single devastating uh, thing that could happen to the Canadian fish and seafood industry. Canadian Federal Fisheries Minister Dominic LeBlanc recently told fishermen there that the stakes require the most protective conservation action possible. And he noted that U.S. regulators are responding dynamically to the whales' movements, actions Canada will need to follow up on. Uh, off the coast of Massachusetts, the Americans decided to delay the opening of a lobster season. Um, those right whales, make no mistake about it, are heading north. The letter was co-signed by senators from New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, and New Jersey. Maine's Senate delegation was notably absent from the signature list. In a joint statement to Maine Public Radio, Senators Angus King and Susan Collins say NOAA should use diplomacy to ensure the rigor of Canada's standards. But if that fails, then a formal investigation of Canada's fishery regulations should be accelerated. They stopped short, however, of supporting potential trade action. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. Coming up, Maine voters will implement ranked choice voting beginning in the June primary. But what exactly is ranked choice voting? Find out next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. The state of Maine will begin implementing ranked choice voting in the June primary elections. It's just one of the many things that's been happening at the Maine State House. Joining us to tell us what's been going on with that and other issues in the state is Steve Missler. He's the chief political correspondent and State House Bureau Chief for Maine Public Radio. Hello once again, Steve. Hey, th thanks for having me, John. So let's start with ranked choice voting. Uh, why don't you explain exactly what it is and how it's going to work? Ranked choice voting is a system where voters select candidates in order of preference, and it really it's only really used when there are two or more than two candidates on a ballot. And so what happens is the a voter will go into the into the voting booth and basically rank their candidates in order of preference. And the system is designed to achieve a majority. So what happens is is once the votes are gathered and tabulated, you know, if somebody gets a majority after the first round, it's over. That person wins. If they get 50 plus 1 percent, then they, they are the winner of the election. Now, if they don't, then the rankings, that's when the rankings come into place. So the last, the, the candidate with the fewer first choice votes is eliminated. But they're, but the second, the, the rankings on that ballot are added to the tabulations of the, the candidates who are still in the running. And that process continues until there is a majority winner. This was adopted by voters in 2016 via ballot initiative. And what's happened since then is just a lot of uh, legal and political wrangling over the legality of the law, whether it comports with our Constitution. And um, last year, the, uh, the Maine Supreme Court said that a, a big provision uh, in gubernatorial and legislative general elections does not align with the Constitution. So that really gave 
the legislature, particularly Republicans who do not like ranked choice voting, they really gave them the political cover to try to repeal the law. Now where we are after a lot of court battles is that ranked choice voting will be in place for the June primary election. And at the same time that voters are testing this for the very first time, they will also be deciding on a separate people's veto question whether they want to keep ranked choice voting going forward. So that sounds a little bit complicated for voters, right? You're voting this way for the very first time, and you're also saying, hey, what do you what do you think of the system anyway? That's right. And it, what's really interesting about it is that ranked choice voting is, is a system that's designed to, in theory, tamp down political rhetoric, make campaigns uh, or candidates less likely to attack one another because, you know, you don't want to alienate voters if you might need um, your opponent's voters in the ranking tabulation. But what's interesting is that because Maine doesn't have an open primary, so if you're an unenrolled voter, which is the majority of voters in Maine, um, you may not participate in the primary because you need to be a part of the one of the parties. Um, so there's a real question of whether this system, which is designed to reduce polarization, is going to be decided by extreme partisan voters who would be turning out for the primary. Uh, and so it'll be really interesting to see how that how it all shakes out. This all seems remarkably convoluted. I, I guess I'm wondering if if you have the sense, Steve, if Mainers really like this this law that they passed by ballot measure a couple of years ago. What I've found is that people who didn't even support ranked choice voting in 2016, they're really ticked off that the legislature has gone to such lengths to try to repeal the law. So they're really angry, even if they didn't support ranked choice voting in the first place, they're really angry that the legislature has tried to undo the so-called will of the voters. Well, if people didn't like lawmakers monkeying with uh, that one uh, ballot initiative that got passed, there's another one that got passed in 2016 that has been monkeyed with as well. The the opening of legalized marijuana in the state of Maine, uh, Governor Paul LePage uh, had vetoed a bill that would allow for the retail sale and cultivation of recreational marijuana. Where are we right now with, with legal pot in Maine, Steve? So the 2016 ballot initiative, another one, there were five that year, that was which was a record, It is the law, um, although now the legislature has finally... What, so what happened is the, the legislature came in in 2016 and they decided that the, the legalization law was deeply flawed and that they needed to rewrite it. And so they embarked on this long quest to do that. They came out with a proposal last fall, um, which originally receives a, a lot of support but was rejected by LePage, and then there wasn't enough votes to override him. So they regrouped and decided to uh, try again. And what emerged from that is a very conservative proposal in the sense that it creates a framework for the retail sale of cultivation and, and uh, of mar- uh, legal cannabis. But there's a lot of questions about whether or not that market will be very viable. Um, so there's And there's a lot of other changes like that, which were designed to garner the Republican votes that they needed to get this thing through uh, and pass Governor LePage's veto. But it is law, and um, it will be probably several months before there, you'll see retail uh, marijuana shops in Maine. And there's a big question about where those will even be. You said that in 2016, there were a record five ballot measures that Mainers voted on. And these two very high-profile votes that have garnered national attention 
in in both cases, the legislature, the governor, seem to be stepping in and, and mucking about with what uh, voters already said they wanted. I wonder if this is going to long-term lessen the confidence of voters in a system that allows ballot measures to be put directly to the people of Maine. If if they can't vote on something and have it become law and then have it be implemented, what's, what's the purpose in the first place? Well, you're asking the, the very question that I hear a lot of people in the public say, like, what's the point? Why would we even go to the polls if the legislature is either going to repeal a law, which they did last year? So to your point, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are just sort of disenchanted with the system. And amid all of this, um, there are a number of people that want to overhaul our ballot initiative process so that it would be harder for groups to get on the ballot. Which is really interesting because one of the reasons why we're, we saw an explosion of ballot initiatives is that the legislature couldn't get anything done. So groups would just go and they would get signatures from voters and then they would try to get these issues passed by voters. In recent history, um, there was always sort of this unspoken rule that you just don't monkey around with something that voters have passed. But this legislature has decided that they are going to tempt the ire of voters and just do whatever they want. They're going to change the, the, these um, these proposals, and some of them do need did need overhaul. But th- this legislature has taken it has taken it to a different level entirely. Your state legislative session uh, recently ended, and it seems, Steve, as though this was a pretty testy and divisive time. Is is there more gridlock, more more partisanship in the main state house than you've seen in the past? Yeah, really. I, what I've seen, certainly. I mean, there's always been an increase in partisanship and gridlock in the, in the, over the last, say, seven and a half years as outside groups have had more of a say in who gets elected or they've played more of a part in elections. But this year has been really bad. And you can really trace it back to um, last year with the first part of the current session, which is actually just adjourned, but um, where we had our first government shutdown in over 20 years. And it was, I challenge anybody to recall or identify what it was really about. And I think that really, what happened there, the animosity, the personal relationships, which we sometimes forget about, uh, really deteriorated. And so now we're at a point where they came back this year and there was just a lot of distrust and nobody felt like the either either side was bargaining in good faith. And so we ended up with dozens of bills, including, you know, school funding that did not pass. They, they're, we don't know what the fate of those bills will be. A last thing for you, Steve. I, I'm wondering how much of a factor the race for governor has been in the political divisiveness. With Paula Page leaving office, there's uh, there's an open seat, and I I can only imagine that the politics of the governor's race is is playing a part in all this. Yeah, I think that's true. We do have uh, let's see, at last count, three people in the legislature that are running for governor. And what's really interesting, John, is as you talk to the candidates for governor this year, they're all talking about coming together and working with the other side. And as they're doing that, there's this backdrop of completely doing the opposite. And so it'll be really interesting if any of these candidates are able to resolve what has been just a big mess in, in the main legislature over the past, at least the last two years, but it's been increasingly so. Steve Missler is chief political correspondent and Statehouse Bureau Chief for Maine Public Radio. Steve, as always, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, too.
We just heard about the state of Maine adopting ranked choice voting. Now here's a question. How does the electoral college system still work in the United States? The Connecticut legislature isn't so sure that it works. Connecticut passed a bill that would commit the state to elect the next president of the U.S. by popular vote. If enough states pass this legislation, each state involved would give all of its electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, no matter who won in each individual state. Joining us to tell us more is Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief with the Connecticut Mirror, which is a, a nonprofit, nonpartisan news service based at the state capitol in Connecticut. Mark, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So why did this national popular vote bill come before the Connecticut uh, State House? It's been before the Connecticut State House for many years. This has been a battle here as well as in other states for much of a decade why it passed now at this point probably has something to do with the last presidential election. There is certainly a reappraisal uh, after once again seeing a president lose a popular vote, but yet win the Electoral College. Let's figure out now how this would exactly work. We've got the state of Connecticut signing on to this, but you need a whole lot of other states to still sign on. What other states are involved in national popular vote already? So the states that have signed on, they're all blue states. And it's, it's less how many states sign on than how many electoral votes they bring to the table. So this national popular vote compact, because that's what it is, it's an interstate compact. Once sufficient states with 270 electoral votes, which would be a majority, once they are on board, this compact would take effect because the states involved could guarantee that the winner of the popular vote would get the sufficient electoral college votes to be actually elected. So there are only 11 states, but there are some big ones. You know, California is one of them. New York is one of them. So they are at, with Connecticut, they are now at 172 electoral votes they need, again, to get to 270. In other states, in New England are involved as well. Yes. Uh, so in this area, you have Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and then going down the coast, New York and New Jersey. And one of the things that people in these states that have passed the national popular vote say is there's an outsized influence of states like Ohio and Florida, Pennsylvania, these these swing states that draw so much attention. People don't really campaign anymore in a large part of New England outside of New Hampshire, of course. And so will this bring maybe some more attention back to these other states that have signed on? That's the really the, the delicious part of this is speculating as to how it would change the game, how it would change campaigning. The one thing we know for certain right now, there are 12 battleground states that get all the attention. And then even within the 12 battleground states, there are really six that got most of the attention. And you have the two most populous states that are ignored. California is hopelessly blue, so nobody goes there. And Texas is hopelessly red. Same thing. So of the most populous states, Florida is really the only one that is in play. So if the National Popular Vote Compact took effect, what would it mean? Certainly, uh, people in New Hampshire uh, would uh, not be entertaining presidential candidates after the primary. The foliage is beautiful in the fall, but there are just <laughs> not enough people up there to draw folks. You know, would we see uh, Northeastern campaign swings where presidential candidates would hit New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts? 
you know, we don't know. That's that's where this would be kind of fun. Would it make campaigning more expensive? Because you can't just focus on six or 12 states. You have to go where the population centers are. Uh, again, we don't know. Another factor is would blue states get bluer as far as down ticket elections and red states get redder? And, and what I mean is would the national parties play bigger roles in getting out the vote across the country and what would that mean down ballot? And that's very important, right? Because more people vote in presidential election years and what happens down ballot has an awful lot to do with who's at the top of the ticket. So you're saying that this could really mean uh, good things if this were to pass for Democrats in, in states that have passed a bill like this. There's just a lot more money flowing into the states for Democratic candidates from the top to the bottom. That's certainly one of the potentials because it's about getting out the vote. It's the popular vote. Right now, you know, in the last election uh, in Connecticut, 41% of voters voted for Donald Trump. He didn't get anything out of it. He didn't come to the state really late. Neither did Hillary Clinton. So it was up to the parties to try to gin out the vote. So under, under a new system, the national parties would certainly have a bigger stake at really refocusing attention on the basics of getting out the vote and getting out the vote is in many places as possible, not just six to 12 states. There is an interesting constitutional question here because the the states banding together to do this seems to circumvent the idea that the the Constitution of the United States wants us to use an electoral college to elect the president of the United States. Isn't this just a workaround? It is a workaround, but the Constitution also is quite clear. It's up to the states on how to apportion their electoral votes. That really is a right that the states have. So in that sense, it seems to be on sound constitutional grounds, even if it is, yes, something of a hack or a workaround. Does it stand any chance of actually passing nationwide? I don't I don't know. It, it's Right now, again, it's only been blue states. If John Kerry had done a little bit better in Ohio in 2004, we would have had a Democrat elected while losing the popular vote, and then it would have neutralized this red-blue thing. And so will that happen in a in another cycle? That could change it, and now you could have red states suddenly get more interested. Mark Pazniokas covers all things political in the state of Connecticut. He's the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks so much, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, we visit the first American museum that's dedicated solely to Palestinian art. And surprise, it's in the state of Connecticut. And it's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. A former New Hampshire Supreme Court Chief Justice is visiting schools around New England, talking about the darkest times in his life. Usually, he ends up hearing from students about some of their dark times, too. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, he's trying to inspire the next generation to change the culture around mental illness. During a recent visit to Salem, New Hampshire High School, hundreds of students intently listened as former Chief Justice John Broderick talked about his oldest son. He was a really talented artist. And so he spent a lot of time in his room with the door closed at his desk, drawing. Today, I would describe it as withdrawing. 
That withdrawing, Broderick says, was the first sign something was wrong. But his family didn't know much about mental health, so they let it go. In college, Broderick's son began drinking heavily. When his son moved back home to go to graduate school, he was drinking daily, and addiction specialists urged Broderick and his wife to kick their son out. It was the hardest decision we ever made and the worst decision, but it was well intended, but it was absolutely the wrong choice. After a few weeks, Broderick let his son move back home, but he believes the time spent on the streets exacerbated his son's illness, and eventually his son erupted. Although Broderick doesn't recall the details, his son attacked him in his sleep. And so one night, he assaulted me. I went to the intensive care unit at the Elliott Hospital. I was there six or eight days. I have no memory of that. My handsome, funny, talented, masters-educated son was arraigned in a public courtroom, issued an orange jumpsuit, and went to the Valley Street Jail. His son ended up serving three years in prison, and Broderick lived in fear, questioning whether to leave his job to keep his son safe. 20 to 25 percent of my day job was hearing appeals from the very population with whom my son would now be living. I wasn't really popular at the state prison. That'll keep you up at night, by the way. But jail marked the first time that his son's mental illness was diagnosed and treated. And he said to me, Dad, I feel so different. He said, I haven't felt like this, Dad, since I was a kid. I can sleep through the night. I'm focused, Dad. My mind's not racing anymore. And when he told us that that night, I knew that we had failed him. I was the parent. I should have known something about mental illness. To help others know something about mental illness, Broderick has addressed more than 200 groups over the past two years as part of a campaign called Change Direction. He wants people to be as familiar with the signs of mental illness as they are with the signs of physical illnesses, such as heart attacks or strokes. The students in Salem who wait to talk with Broderick appear to know something about mental health. They share stories about themselves, their families. One young man talks about a friend's suicide. A friend of ours, he passed away a year ago Saturday, took his own life. And mm. the whole time I was listening to your, your story, oh, yeah. I couldn't stop thinking about him. So. Well, you want to know something? That young man didn't ask for that problem. And, you know, if, if you, as my generation, missed the boat, if your generation says, hey, enough of this nonsense, I'll start talking about it. Another student weeps and embraces Broderick. What grade are you in? I'm a sophomore. Yeah. <laughs> and I just wanted to thank you because your message is so important. And I think it's really important for people to, like, understand that people are, like, suffering. Like, it's not okay. Are you suffering? <laughs> Are you seeing somebody getting help? Good for you, by the way. And you should feel zero shame. Seriously. Okay, so stick with the program. Broderick believes this upcoming generation is the least judgmental in history, and he hopes he's making a difference by inspiring change. It's the single most important thing I've ever done. It's acutely personal. And people share their stories with me that they would never share with me because I've been a judge or they don't care. What they care about is this guy will understand and he's advocating for people like me. And so before we strap a gun on the math teacher, you know, I think we need to do a lot. If I could speak every single day to a different high school, I would do it. Broderick has spoken at more than 75 New Hampshire schools and he's talking with officials in other New England states as well. His son is doing well. 
Broderick says he hasn't touched alcohol since before he went to prison, and his son is now married with a nine-year-old daughter. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Deborah Becker. Palestinian artists have faced a tough battle over the years to expose their work. One of the first major exhibits in the U.S. happened back in 2003, and no museum would take the show. The curator had to get a little bit creative. One show ended up being held at the Venezuelan Embassy in Washington, D.C. But as David DeRoche of Connecticut Public Radio reports, there's a new museum in Connecticut that is dedicated solely to Palestinian art, and it's the first in the Americas. Faisal Sala is both the curator and owner of the Palestinian Museum U.S. in Woodbridge, near New Haven. Wow, so you got a lot of stuff to hang on the walls, I guess. Yep, and there's uh, more on the way. He leads me through the halls of the museum, stopping at one installation by artist Raji Cook. The uh, installation on the floor here is called the Living Stones. The white-haired Sala points to smooth river stones scattered across the room. Each stone is covered by a photo portrait wrapped in twine. The point is that many people visit the Holy Land to see ancient sites, which he calls the dead stones. This exhibit invites you to think about the living. Just to emphasize that when you visit, you should really be visiting the the people, not just the stones. (laughs) Sala assembled this installation along with works from 27 other artists for the museum's opening. Samia Halabi is one of the best-known Palestinian artists exhibiting her work here. She spoke via Skype from New York. The way Palestinian painting will act as a powerful ambassador in the West is to show us to be a thinking, creative people rather than poverty-stricken victims. Much of the museum's art is vibrant and feels optimistic. One part of the collection shows people in pastel colors surrounded by whimsical shapes and textures. Others show regional traditions, an olive harvest, a coffee ceremony. There's even an homage to the prickly pear. Opening an art museum is a new venture for Sala. By trade, he's a businessman. He founded a software company. He's been a consultant. He now runs a medical device startup. He says he's funded the museum all on his own. He wants it to be completely independent, free from any political or religious affiliations. But he recognizes that it's almost impossible for Palestinian art to not make a statement with political overtones. There are certain things about what's going on there that are going to seep into this, no matter what you do. But... Most, most of the art we have is, is just art. There's, there's no political message in it. Though one piece of art that greets visitors captures a provocative moment. It's a memorial of sorts for Rachel Corey, an American who was protesting the destruction of Palestinian houses in 2003 when she was killed by a bulldozer driven by an Israeli soldier. While Israeli officials dispute the circumstances of her death, Palestinians hold Corey in high regard. Then there's an Israeli military ammunition box filled with stones. It's another piece by Raji Cook. Uh, Palestinians throw stones, the Israelis shoot live bullets at them. Controversy is inherent in almost anything related to Palestinians and Israelis. Despite that, Faisal Saleh hopes to make the Palestinian Museum U.S. a welcoming place. We're putting art on the walls, and, and we're reading poetry, and we're, we're playing music. Uh, anybody wants to join us, they're welcome. <laughs> they want to talk politics, they go somewhere else. We're not in, you know, that's not what we're doing here. Sala hopes that people come to the museum with an open mind. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm David DeRoche in Hartford. As we just heard, it's hard for Palestinian art to rise to prominence without being tied to politics. The personal stories of Palestinians face the same fate. Nadia Abuelazam, a Palestinian-American living in the Boston area, wants to change all that. In 2015, she launched a series of events called Palestinians Live, featuring true stories told on stage. The stories are later released on Palestinians' podcast, 
which Nadia also created. Reporter Annie Sensabaugh went to a Palestinians live event at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she found not only entertainment, but a community. It's a Sunday evening and the theater is packed. The mood is festive. The music is loud. The chatter is in English and Arabic. Friends catch up at the bar. Then, suddenly, the music and chatter start to fade away. People rush back to their seats. And a woman in a long red dress walks on stage. She takes the mic, and with no introduction, she starts to tell a story. It was my second time in Palestine. This trip was a graduation present from my parents. This is Nadia Belazam, the founder of Palestinians Live. The story Nadia tells is about a trip she took to East Jerusalem with her sister and two cousins when they were teenagers. My sister and I had been to Palestine once before, but we were really young, and at the time we really didn't understand the politics or the occupation. So this trip was going to be different. We were going to have three weeks of fun, but also three weeks of learning. While in East Jerusalem, Nadia stayed with her aunt Fedia and Uncle Sammy. Nadia says the most memorable moment of the trip was the day they visited a town in the West Bank called Jericho. They rode a cable car to the top of a mountain, had some lunch, and then, as they got ready to head back to East Jerusalem, Sammy mentioned that he and his brother had recently bought a parcel of land in Jericho. He suggested they check up on the land, and so the family piled into Sammy's car. But after about 15 minutes of driving around, Sammy appeared to be lost. We asked him, isn't that the same car we passed like 10 minutes ago? And he admitted at that point that he in fact was lost and did not know where his land was. Nadia says she and her sister and cousins were laughing hysterically. He'd stop at a corner with some dirt on it. He'd bend down and take some dirt into his hands. He'd smell it and throw it up in the air and say, nope, this is not my land. And then he'd get to the next corner and he'd lick his finger and he'd put it up in the air and see the wind blow and feel the direction of the wind and say, nope, this isn't my land either. At one point, Sammy asked a police officer for directions while the teenagers giggled wildly in the backseat. Eventually, they gave up on finding Sammy's land. And I realize now that Sammy that day was not really looking for his land. Sammy was really teaching us about what it means to be Palestinian. That this feeling of being lost, a feeling dispossessed, a feeling usurped, was a part of being Palestinian. Nadia says she also learned that day that being Palestinian is not something you can go through alone. It needs to be a collective experience. Palestinians are a people without a country. On top of that, the performers tonight are part of a diaspora. When you add on layers and decades of politics, it gets all the more complicated. Nadia says having a space in Boston to tell their stories has helped the Palestinian community bond and thrive. It really makes me feel like I'm a part of something larger than I am, which um, doesn't happen often as a Palestinian living in the diaspora. Good evening, everyone. Michael John Maria, another performer at the show, told a series of stories about his name. And I am 100% Palestinian-American, and that's true. Uh, You would never guess it by the sound of my name. 
Michael says his parents gave him a common American name with the hope that he wouldn't face the same struggles that they did as immigrants in the U.S. When it came time for Michael to name his newborn son a few months ago, he wanted to give him a name that would have some relevance to his Palestinian heritage. Michael says he combed through a map of Palestine for inspiration. And I looked at the villages that had been wiped out and demolished following the Nakba in the years later. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic. Palestinians often use it to refer to the War of 1948, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were pushed off their land or fled, and the state of Israel was established. Michael's family is from Bethlehem, so he played around with that as a possible name. I couldn't turn Bethlehem into a proper first name, <laughs> try as I might. But near Nablus, I came across a small village by the name of Sebastia, and I thought, I can make that work. <laughs> and we named him Sebastian, and I like that name. Michael tells me after the show that he takes comfort in knowing that Sebastian will grow up with a Palestinian identity. It's an identity he's proud to pass down. I'm very proud once somebody asks me what my ancestry is for me to say that I'm Palestinian, and I don't know that other generations have necessarily had pride in that. Nadia says Palestinians Live has evolved since she launched it in 2015. People have an excitement about them when they tell their stories now that before they were a little bit more fearful. And we're seeing a lot more excitement and happiness around the sharing of stories and the community around the storytelling that I think, I hope, is an evolution of um, maybe some change that we've created in the community here in Boston and in other parts of the country. So I think that that's the largest change that I'm excited about, this idea of going from fear to hope and joy in the sharing of stories. That was Annie Sinsabaugh reporting. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.